turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Have you ever noticed that everything breaks? I have because I tend to break everything. Uh, does anyone else just like accidentally break things all the time? Just, okay, I'm glad I know I'm not alone. Uh, recently, my pellet grill caught on fire. Uh, thankfully, I did put it out. I saved the food. It's fine. My lawnmower, I pulled the starter cord, snapped right in half, got that fixed. My closet door, it's one of those annoying sliding deals that just gets stuck while I was trying to unslide it. Well, there it went, off the hinge. And look, it's, it's not my fault. It runs in my family. Uh, I blame them. You may have noticed on the back of my truck, I have a dent on my back fender. I received that dent several years ago, and I was backing out of my driveway at home in Tennessee, and I forgot that parked behind me was my mom's minivan. Look, it was dark, okay? I couldn't see, and to be totally fair, Amber was right there in the passenger seat. She didn't say anything, okay? (laughs) The best part of that story, though, is that my younger twin sisters were pulling out of the driveway at the exact same time, and as my sister was maneuvering her car in reverse, her front bumper caught on the bush. And somehow, the bush ripped the bumper of her car completely off. And this is all happening, bang, bang, simultaneously. My sister, she jumps out of the car. She's crying. I get out of the truck mad that I didn't look where I was going. My dad comes out of the house yelling, what is going on? My mom comes out. She's concerned for everyone's well-being. It was one big old mess. So I break things. And to make matters worse, I can't really fix things either. Uh, That's why the dent is still in the back of my truck. And I know there's people I can pay to fix it. But here's the thing, I'm I'm cheap. And time has now passed. It's kind of a part of who I am, okay? Everything breaks. Vehicles, homes, electronics, furniture. Not just stuff, but relationships break. Marriages, families, business deals, churches. Human bodies break. Have you ever broken a bone? The earth breaks. Have you ever experienced an earthquake? Nations break. Have you watched the news lately? (laughs) Look, if there is one thing we can all agree on, it's this. We live in a broken world. Something is fundamentally wrong with people and the world and even the ground we walk on. Everyone knows it. We even feel it. Things are broken and we don't know how to fix it. We try try lots of things, but we cannot seem to fix the brokenness of our world. In the past two years have been a stark reminder of our brokenness. Do you remember it was two years ago this week that we became aware of this reality of COVID-19 and how it would affect all of our lives? I remember thinking at the time, like, ah, it's so much confusing. So I didn't know who to trust and what to listen to. And, and we saw people suffer and die. We saw loneliness and isolation. We saw job loss and stress and economic uncertainty. We saw an increasing mental health crisis in our country. We saw a 12-month period where drug overdoses rose by 30% to the point where today opioid overdose is the number one cause of death for men my age. It's brokenness. So people want to know where is God in this? I thought he's supposed to love us. Where is God's love in this? How does a broken world fit with the idea of a God who's supposed to be lovingly in control? Well, the Bible doesn't give us the answer to every question we have. It doesn't tell us why God does what he does in every situation. 
But it does give us a framework for understanding what's wrong with our world and what God is doing to fix it. Most significantly, it tells us exactly where God's love is in a broken world. And here's where it is. It's right here. It's as strong and as unchanging as it's ever been. And there is no better passage on the unchanging, incredible love of God than Romans chapter 8. We started the first half last week. We talked about how significant this chapter is in the Bible. And today we're going to finish this chapter as we cover the second half. So let's walk through our passage verse by verse. And as we do, I want to give you three things this morning we learn about God's love in a groaning world. Here's the first thing we will see if you want to write this down. Number one, in Christ, God's love is assured. Look with me at verses 18 through 20 of Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Let's recall Paul into the previous section, verse 17, by explaining that if we follow Christ, we're going to suffer because we're heirs with him. And now he offers us this word of comfort about the suffering we'll face as Jesus follows. He says our, our present suffering is not worth comparing to the future glory that is coming. He's not denying that we're going to face difficulty in trials. He's not denying or downplaying how badly life stinks sometimes. But he wants to assure us that if we were to place present sufferings on a scale with future glory, the future glory would so outweigh the present suffering that it would not even be worth comparing the two. Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What is this future glory? If you've been in church a long time like me, your mind probably goes to heaven. Right? We think about eternity, spend, spending that time with Jesus, being with him, and we know ultimately that's what he's talking about with future glory. But there's more to it we're going to see in a minute. Verse 19, Paul shifts, though, from our sufferings to the suffering of creation. And he personifies creation. That means he speaks of it as if it's a person. And he uses this rhetorical device to remind us that it's not just you and me who are broken, but creation is also broken because it's under a curse. We learn about this curse in Genesis 3. Do you remember that? Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and eat the fruit. And God came down and he cursed the serpent and the man and the woman and creation. Listen to this. God said in Genesis 3, 17 through 19, and to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The ground itself is cursed. Whereas before it was perfect and it easily produced food and produce for us, now it brings forth thorns and thistles. It takes sweat and pain to work it, to get something out of it. Those of you who have farmed, you know that, right? 
And ultimately, the ground is now a burial place for our bodies when we die, where we decay and return to dust. But that curse in Genesis chapter 3 was not the final word on God's creation. Notice verse 20 ends with the words, in hope. Creation was cursed and subjected with hope baked into it. And here's how Paul continues. Let's pick up with that in hope and see verses 21 through 22. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Here's the hope. It's the hope that creation will one day be freed from its curse. When Jesus comes back and he ushers in the end of all things, he's not going to destroy and get rid of the earth. We're not going to ride away on a Jesus rocket ship while he pushes the big red button and detonates the earth. That's sci-fi. But the earth is going to actually be restored and renewed to its original good design. And and Paul uses an, an interesting way to explain this. He compares it to childbirth. Now, obviously, it's not something I have experienced personally. But having seen it, I understand that childbirth is painful. And that pain intensifies as the baby is delivered. But once the new life arrives, the joy and thrill of a new child replaces the pain that came before. And this joy outweighs the suffering of childbirth and makes the pain all worthwhile. That's the image the Bible gives us of this future glory. We have a present curse, present suffering, present pain, but one day all will be made right and new again. This isn't just true of creation, it's true of us too. Look at verses 23 through 25. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We also are groaning. We too feel the pain and brokenness of the world, and yet we have the Holy Spirit in us. So so why do we groan if God is living in us? Why are we waiting eagerly if we've already been saved? Well, this is where we see a theological term that is very important in the Bible. So i got to give you another big word alert, okay? This is called the already not yet tension. Think about those two terms. Already, not yet. There's a tension there. As a saved follower of Jesus, we already have been forgiven. We already have the Holy Spirit in us. We already know God's love and grace. We already are citizens of heaven. But we are not yet completely free from sin. We are not yet in our final home in a perfect creation. We are not yet seeing Jesus face to face. Do you see that? This is why we groan. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. We we have this strong desire for God to finish what he started. You ever experienced that? You ever felt that strong desire where you thought, man, I just wish Jesus would come back and fix all this mess. I just want to be with him. That's a normal thing for a Christian to experience because we live in that already not yet tension. And a big part of the future glory we wait for is the redemption of our bodies. Did you know that when Jesus comes back and we spend eternity with him, 
We will not float around like angels with wings, laying around on clouds, playing harps. Who wants to do that? We will spend eternity in bodies, in our bodies, which have been perfected and renewed and restored. And this redemption, this restoration is at the heart of Christian hope. Paul says we were saved in this hope. He then explains how hope works. He says you don't hope in something you've seen. We hope in something we have not experienced yet. And as a result, we wait for it with patience. I don't know about you, but I struggle with patience. Anybody else? I don't like to wait. I don't like it. It's like when you order something online, and this is a first world problem. But you order something online you really, really want, and you have to wait on it to arrive. You check the mail, and you check the porch every day. Oh, is it going to come? It's not there. When's it going to be here? I don't know. I just I hope, but I don't know when it's coming. That's how the world views hope. It's wishful thinking. It lacks certainty. Biblical hope is like being an Amazon Prime member, okay? I love Amazon Prime because when I order something, it tells me exactly when my package will arrive. And you know what? It's just about always accurate. It's amazing. I don't know how they do it. I don't have to sit around hoping it's going to show up one day. I know exactly when it will arrive because my handy-dandy app tells me. So I'm waiting with confidence. That's the kind of hope, that's the kind of waiting we as Christians have. We have biblical hope, which is a confident expectation that God will fulfill his promises. Despite our suffering and our difficulties, we know, we know future glory is coming. And the reason we know is because we'll see at the end of Romans 8, we have a God who has unchanging, unconditional love for us. In Christ, God's love is assured. Because of his love, he will not leave us in this state of groaning, but he's promised that he will come back and he will make all things new. He will redeem our bodies. He will restore creation. And we will see and experience and enjoy his glory forever. It's coming. It's assured. That's first. Here's the second thing we learn about God's love. Number two. In Christ, God's love is active. So yeah, we, we wait and we endure and we're patient and suffering, but God doesn't leave us hanging around without any help. He doesn't expect us to just tough it out and get by each day and grit our teeth. No, he is actively doing something in us. Look at what he says in verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In our weakness, in our suffering, we are not alone. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. And one of the chief ways the Holy Spirit helps you in your life is in your prayers. You ever encountered this situation that Paul describes? When you know that you need to pray, but you don't know what to pray for, you don't know where to start, you don't even know what to ask. There's been several times in my life where I've been in that place and my heart is heavy and I'm just at a loss and things are so dark or messed up around me, I don't even know where to begin. We see here that in those very moments, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What does that mean? What does it mean the Spirit's groaning? 
Well, we don't know exactly what he means, but it seems that in some mysterious way, the Spirit is praying on our behalf in our hearts. We don't hear it, but he's, he's doing something in us. He's helping us. He's groaning for us. And how exactly do those groanings help us? Paul tells us the Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. Look, we don't always know what God's will is in a given situation. But the Spirit does. He's God, and he can take our prayers and form them into God's will on our behalf. It's kind of like this. Uh, recently at my house, we bought a little basketball goal for my kids. My daughter, who's four, she can shoot the ball, and she can get it there, and she can actually make it in the basket. But my two-year-old son, he, he can't. The goal's just too high for him. So what I will do is I will stand next to the basket, and my son will do his best to throw the ball up and shoot it. And I will catch the ball, and I will put it in the hoop for him. And he'll get so excited because he thinks he scored, but in reality, it was me. I did it. I dunked the ball for him. I took his attempt and put it where it needed to go. That's what the Holy Spirit does with our prayers. Sometimes we don't know what to pray, and all we can do is cry or groan or sigh or just say, God, help me. Sometimes we may even pray for the completely wrong thing. We don't even know what's right. But the Spirit takes our prayer and he puts it in the basket. God loves to hear from his children so much that he put two persons of the Trinity in charge of interceding on your behalf. The Spirit and the Son both stand ready to take your feeble prayers before a king who can answer them. That's the power of prayer. Do you understand that? That when you pray, you have Jesus and the Holy Spirit on your side. God's love is not only active in our prayers. He's also active in every step of the spiritual journey we're on. Look at these verses 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. These are some of the most famous verses in all the Bible, including one of my personal favorites, Romans 8, 28. Can't tell you how many times I've leaned on that. It's an incredible promise. This tells us that God is actively working in our circumstances for good. And notice, what circumstances does he say? He says, all things. He doesn't put a limit or a qualifier on that. It's not most things or spiritual things or the times you do the right things. He says God works all things. The hard things, the mistakes, the defeats, the suffering, the pain, the wound, the wounds we received from others. In some mysterious way, God promises to work these for good. And yet, I know that for some of you, in the midst of something really hard, this is hard to hear. How, how can this be for my good? But let's take a minute to consider the alternatives. Would we rather have a God who knows exactly what we're going through but is powerless to do anything about it? Would we rather have a God who's powerful enough to fix our problems and help but he doesn't care enough to do anything about it? That's not comforting and that's not true. 
What's comforting is knowing that we have a God who knows our pain, who longs to comfort us, and also has the power to take every single thing and turn it and use it in his sovereign hands for our good and his glory. That's Paul's point, and I believe this is seriously the key to making it through the Christian life in one piece. Knowing that somehow, some way, God is working in everything for good. But notice, he doesn't say it's necessarily how we define that word good. We don't always know what's good. I would contend, I rarely know what's good for me. But a God of infinite knowledge and wisdom does. And we know in his, th- in his hands all things will work for our ultimate good, which notice he says is being conformed to the image of his son. In fact, we've been predestined for that. Now, we hear that word predestination. There's often a few different reactions in my experience. Some people hear the preacher say the word predestination. They get excited. They love to talk about it and get into debates and all that. So another group of people hears the preacher say predestination. They get nervous, okay? Oh, boy, what's he going to say? This is, oh, this is scary. Then there's a third group that hears predestination. They say, I have no idea what that means. Well, let's understand something. Predestined is a biblical word, okay? It's, it's right there in the text. It, it simply means that God chose the destination before. In this case, the destination he chose before is for his people to become like Jesus. So we don't have to be afraid or scared about these these terms, these biblical concepts. You know, the tussle comes when we discuss how God predestines and why God predestines and who God predestines. Let me tell you, these are questions the church has been arguing about for 2,000 years. We ain't going to solve it today, okay? And let me also tell you, That Paul's point in this passage is not to settle a debate or sell theology books. His point is to provide comfort to his people, to us. To show us that God's love is active, that God is actively working in our life circumstances. And he started before we even existed. This was his plan all along to make us more like Jesus. This means there's purpose to our pain and suffering that we experience. It's not an accident. It's not a surprise. This is God's plan. He predestined, he chose before that we might become like Jesus. And he will see it through. That's what verse 30 shows us. Look again at that. It says, those whom he predestined, some of them he'll call. No. He said he also called. And those whom he called, you know, the good ones he'll justify. No, he said he also justified. And those whom he justified, if they're really, really good, they'll get to glory. No. He says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's a clear, unbroken chain of plan for you. God has a clear plan for every believer. And this plan started before the world had ever turned on its axis, before you'd ever breathed your first breath. Once God starts working in someone's life, he does not stop till glory. That's the goal. That's the destination of every Christian, to be made into the image of Jesus, to become like him, to be glorified with him by whatever means necessary. So the encouragement in a groaning and broken world is to know that God is working in you right now. He's doing something. He's not winging it. He's not figuring it out as he goes. 
He's not trying to make your messed up puzzle pieces fit together. Listen, he made the puzzle. And every single piece will fit according to his sovereign plan. He did not wind the clock of your life and let it go. But every second ticks to the rhythm of his sovereign schedule. And he will not waste a moment of our suffering. The pain is not wasted. The sickness is not wasted. The anxiety is not wasted. The broken relationship is not wasted. God loves you too much to sit back and let you groan for nothing. But your groans are merely the opening notes of a symphony of glory. God's love is active now. That's second. Here's the third and last point, number three. In Christ, God's love is available. I'm not sure there can be a more encouraging section of Scripture for believers than these verses right here. I'm just going to read them in their entirety, Romans 8, 31 to 39. And if I can encourage you to go back later and read this again, maybe every day, <laughs> we need it. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that don't get you excited, we may have to check your pulse, okay? <laughs> That's it. That's the triumphant conclusion Paul wants us to see at the, this whole part of the book till now. Because he says... What then shall we say to these things? What can we say? In light of all we've seen about the gospel, about what Christ has done, about this good news, what can we possibly say? Well, he said some things. He gave us some rhetorical questions to encourage us. He says, if God is for you, who can be against you? Do you know that God is for you, that he's working for you, he's on your side? He gave up his own son for crying out loud. Don't you think he'll give you whatever else you need? Seriously, he crushed his own son in your place. He gave up the very blood of his own perfect son. Don't you think his generosity will extend to your daily needs and worries? And who could possibly bring any charge against you or to condemn you if God has declared you innocent and forgiven and saved? And who cares what other people think? People curse you, look down on you, betray you, hurt you, think poorly of you, laugh at you. Who cares? You've been justified by God and Jesus himself is pleading your case right now in the throne room of God. And if Jesus loves you, and if God the creator of the universe loves you, who can take that away? But, 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 but what about my job? What if I lose my job or I fail in my career? Still loved. 
What if the markets crash and I go broke and I struggle to pay my bills? Still loved. What if I get a terrible medical diagnosis and I live in pain and difficulty? Still loved. What if I lose my life? What if someone hurts me? What if something terrible happens to my my family, my children, my grandchildren, my friends? Still loved. Psalm 44, 22, that's the quote there from Paul. He, He confirms some of these things will happen. He says, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. But even in difficulty, even if your worst nightmare were to come true, because of God's love, you are more than conqueror. Like we aren't just victorious or triumphant. It's more than that. Even the difficulties we face along the way become testimonies of God's grace. But, but, but what about death? Neither death nor life can change God's love. What about Satan and his, his attacks on us? Neither angels nor rulers can change God's love. What about the future? I mean, we don't know what's going to happen in our world and this situation and the political landscape and the economy and all these things. Neither things nor present nor things to come can change God's love. There's no power. There's nothing big enough, strong enough. There's nothing in this entire universe that has the power to take away or to change one single ounce of God's love for you in Christ. It's done. And that's how amazing God's love is. And here's the best part, friends. In Christ, God's love is available to everyone right now. It's available to the worst sinner, to the furthest rebel. It's available to your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, your family. Do they know? Do they know about God's love for them in Christ? If not, how could we keep it from them? How, how could we not say it? We can't. It's God's love that motivates us to take this love to the world that hasn't heard it. When you know this love for yourself, when you see how available it is to others, then you will want to tell other people about it. Our community does not need to hear our latest political talking point or our social media opinion on every cultural issue. What they need to hear is the love of God in Christ. That's what our groaning world needs, and it's our job to get it to them. I love these words from a hymn we're going to sing. It's called The Love of God. It says, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The wandering child is reconciled by God's beloved son. The aching soul again made whole and priceless pardon won. That's it. In Christ, God's love is assured, active, and available for you. Do you believe that? If so, what are you going to do about it? Let's go to God in prayer.